Welcome to the Black Belter Podcast. You're listening to episode 63. And this week's guest is John Mackey. Some people might remember John from back in episode 3. And actually, if you want to hear John's story of how he got into martial arts, you can go back and check that out. As the reason I asked John to come on today was to talk about energy systems. And John has a master's in coaching science and sport. He is the coaching director for Kickboxing Ireland and is the performance director for Canoeing Ireland. And John as well done his dissertation around energy systems and cycling. So given John's experience in martial arts and combat sports and given his area of study, I thought he would be a great person to have on to talk about this area. So today I chat to John about what the energy systems are and how they relate to combat sports, how to train them, how to test and retest conditioning, how strength and conditioning are interlinked and more. And as always, I'd ask that if you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review and subscribe as that all helps the show grow. And uh, let's get into it. So, what's up, John? Thanks, Minnie, for coming on. Hey, Jamie. It's good to be back. Thanks for the invite again. It's been uh, well, about 18 months, I think, since we sat and Yeah, and yeah, talk. yeah. Even maybe in a bit longer. I think it's it's coming close to two years. But uh, it's, it? it doesn't even yeah. feel like two years, really, because like... No, it doesn't. No. The last two years have been a blur, I suppose, with all this COVID nonsense and restrictions and lockdown, so... Yeah. Yeah, well, look, it's good to be back. It's good to be back. I've been keeping uh, keeping an ear on your, your recent interviews and that, which has been really great. So well done for keeping everything moving. And I'm delighted to be back sharing some information. Yeah. Like I said, there was, like I said to you, there, there was a break where I suppose I got a bit lazy and... And things like that, but that was, uh, well, I got it was a perfect yeah, excuse was, to bring it back. So but we've we've been rolling yeah. since, so that's the plan to keep it going. No harm in taking a break when you need a rest every now and again. Yeah, I suppose like we're not like the the plan and the reason I asked you to come on was to spot talk about um energy systems in particularly combat sports and that. Um, I don't really I don't really want to go over the same old ground really on like your whole story of like how you are got involved in martial arts and that if people I suppose want to listen to that they can go back and listen you're on yeah. episode three so that's, that's way right. back they can go back and check that out but I suppose maybe if you want to give, black and white. yeah maybe if you want to give a brief a brief overview maybe of like who you are what you do who you do it with yeah sure no problem very uh, very quickly I'm a kickboxing coach I've been involved in martial arts now for over 30 years coaching 16 or 17 of those years former national coach for kickboxing Ireland current director of coaching for kickboxing Ireland Working uh, performance management, high performance director for canoeing, master's degree in performance and coaching science. And I kind of focused mo- most of that master's degree on um, sport specific science in relation to energy systems and energy production, mostly in relation to cycling. So my thesis was done around cycling, but a lot of the information that you learn from endurance sports uh, can be extrapolated and used then in all sorts of other sports as well. So obviously my main sport is combat sport. I'm going to try and impart some knowledge around conditioning and energy system training in this podcast. Yeah, I saw you did that with, with cycling. Was there a, was there a particular reason why cycling? Um, it was one of the not really to be honest with you. It was one of the topics that was put forward, and I was I was I was kind of messing around with topics for the dissertation for a little while, and I, I had a real interest in exercise science and physiology anyway, and. Um, one of the topics came up in relation to what's called functional threshold power within cycling. Um, I won't get into what all that's about. Um, and our original research plan was to um, bring cyclists into the lab and run some physiological uh, testing on them to identify certain parameters within their physiology and where functional threshold power exists. And it was to be done with female cyclists because there wasn't a whole pile of 
um, research done within that population. But COVID kind of threw a spanner into that and the, uh, the actual um, lab testing was cancelled, which is understandable because your blood sampling and your, your testing gas analysis and you've got you know, your close contact and stuff like that. So we couldn't do it. So we stayed, the, the supervisor suggested we stay with, within the topic of functional threshold power, but we did a what's called a scoping review uh, which is a, an investigation of all of this scientific research that's been done in relation to functional threshold power and uh, an associated field test called the functional threshold power 20 minute test. Uh, so yeah, I got stuck into that and just ended up down a rabbit hole in relation to FTP and cycling, but uh, really, really enjoyable. As I said, I really like um, you know, the subject of exercise science. And if you really want to understand physiology and energy systems in relation to sports performance you have to look at endurance athletes um, and how their physiology is kind of made up and, and, and their sport performance objectives um, because it's just so complex and so deep and so amazing really like the literature that's out there in relation to what endurance athletes do and can do from a performance point of view it's absolutely mind-blowing and then you take all that and kind of work back and you've got all the different sports then along that kind of energy system production continuum. So you can learn a lot from just understanding how endurance works. Um, yeah, here I am now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I suppose like with energy, like you are somebody I see like a lot online talks about energy systems and, and correct conditioning for combat sports. And yeah. there's other people that like I know, like myself, I even, I've, I've, I've bought uh, Joel Jamison's book um so that's kind oh, of yeah. based on the same and, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and i know adrian as well as i think has read the book as well and we have a couple of other people in taekwondo who have you know that use that use bits from the from that book because obviously yeah. that's more so for mma but like you said it's yeah. how you work back yeah. and get into kickboxing absolutely there's a lot of great got a lot of great quality in joel's courses yeah and, and the uh the content that he puts out is, is really good yeah 100 yeah so I suppose if you want to do, do you want to start maybe by giving a, a brief overview or not even a brief but an overview of yeah what what are energy systems what are the energy systems what yeah. they are functions yeah sure I'll, yeah I'll do my best absolutely and what I'll do and what I said to you before we we switched on air and went live for recording was that I'm going to try keep it as simple as possible because obviously your audience are coaches and athletes so I think it's useful if they get a practical kind of some practical takeaway points for their own. For their own training so if i if i end up down a, a sports science rabbit hole jamie don't be afraid to put your hand down and pull me back yeah. out of it i'll try my best as well <laughs> okay yeah no worries we'll see where it goes so yeah so i suppose look when we talk about energy systems we're talking about energy production uh, within the body and energy production is relevant obviously to um, exertion so exercise or, or activities there's three ways in which energy can be produced uh, within the body Two of those ways are um, and, uh, through anaerobic pathways. Um, and anaerobic meaning that the energy is produced without the presence of oxygen. Now we'll get into all of that maybe later on and put a little bit of context on that. Um, um, I suppose that the, a good starting point will be to talk about what's called the phosphocreatine energy system. And I'll try and explain all three um, as best I can and then put their relationship into context and how they work together. If I was to uh, I'm in a seated position here now. If I was to stand up, for example, that activity would be very sudden. Um, and I suppose from a resting point of view, it would have an amount of intensity attached to it. I'm going from a rested state into a standing state, which requires energy for me to be able to do that. Because it's such a, um, a, such a sudden movement, 
the um, energy that's produced will be done through a, the phosphocreatine system, which means that it's done so fast that it doesn't need to go through that complex process of needing oxygen in order to produce the energy to do it. So that activity for me, from sitting to standing, energy is produced rapidly um, for me to be able to do that. Now, from a sport performance point of view, um, where performance would fit in in relation to that type of energy production is, is any, any activity or exercise or sport that is a, um, high in power output, but very, very short in duration. And obviously the, the, the pros to the phosphocreatine energy system is that it can produce energy rapidly, very, very quickly. It's a chemical reaction between phosphates and creatine that result in the production of ATP. And, and within that, within that uh, reaction, then energy is produced rapidly. The downside to it is that it depletes very, very quickly. So this is why we can't, um, you know, we, we can't do all out sprints for maybe more than 10 or 12 seconds. And sports such as the 100 meter sprint, for example, uh, the shot put, the, the javelin throw, uh, the long jump, the high jump would, would all rely heavily and predominantly on the phosphocreatine energy system. Um, and as I said, one of the downsides to that is that energy and ATP can be depleted really, really quickly. The second energy system also staying within the anaerobic pathways is called the anaerobic glycolytic system. And that system looks after energy production. And again, there's a lot of variability in this chain. These are kind of general guidelines depending on the athlete's training status and their fitness levels. But generally, the glycolytic energy system will look after energy production um, from anywhere from that 10 seconds on to give or take maybe a minute or, and a half or more, depending on the fitness levels of the athlete. And like the phosphocreatine system, it, um, it can produce energy very, very quickly. Uh, about, I think it's about three to four times faster than the aerobic system, which we'll be discussing uh, in a couple of minutes. Um, again, there's a downside to the uh, anaerobic glycolytic system in that, like the phosphocreatine system, um, you know, energy stores can be depleted very, very quickly. And from a sports performance point of view, this is where I suppose combat sport is, is very relevant because we, were, we would rely heavily on the anaerobic glycolytic system. We would rely a lot on all three of them. But again, depending, uh, depending on I suppose, the training status of the athlete, the anaerobic glycolytic system would be one of the energy pathways that would fuel a performance within, uh, within combat sport. The third energy um, production system known as the oxidative phosphorylation system or the aerobic energy pathway uh, looks after um, exercise and activity that's relatively low in intensity but long in duration. So um, walking, for example, would be one of them. Uh, jogging, depending again on your, on your status, a jog for me at the moment might be a little bit more than moderate intensity. <laughs> but you get my, you get my meaning. I do. The, the pros and cons to the aerobic system, um, I suppose the pros is that there is an abundance of energy um, uh, reserves for, for aerobic exercise. That's why we can walk for long distances, right? And if you're relatively fit, you can jog for long distances at low intensity. The downside to the aerobic system is that it's a very complex uh, drawn out process for where energy is produced. And this is why the higher intensity, high power output activities tend to switch away from the aerobic system because it needs the energy demand, it needs to meet the energy demand much quicker than the aerobic energy system can do it. So that's the three kind of a gen very general, very simplified um, overview of what the energy systems do and their function. 
Um, one of the important things to remember with the energy systems, and this is this is often put out um, as a myth that, that the energy systems kind of work independently of each other, which is not true whatsoever. They work absolutely inter interdependent and they rely and overlap on each other as intensities are increased and, and decreased. So from a combat sport point of view, we need to really understand that um, from a performance perspective and from a training perspective, all three of those energy systems are functioning at any one time in order to fuel us for um, a performance. That makes sense. Yeah. And I suppose, like you said, when it, uh, maybe I don't know if we want to get into that now, but like, like you said, when like they, they're trained independently, and I think that's often what you see, yeah. I suppose, particularly in uh, like kickboxing or taekwondo or like the shorter uh, duration combat sports, where you see sure. people doing long distance running and they're yeah. and, and they're feeling fit and all this, but like obviously, yes, there's going to be an overall increase in fitness. But it's yeah. maybe like not the most efficient way because it doesn't necessarily yeah. fit. Like it's not the most effective way of training the physiological demands of the sport. But yes, you will see exactly. an improvement. But like I said, not the most efficient way. Because yeah, yeah, you're you're dead right. And I suppose if if we can maybe look at the relationship between the uh, the energy systems relevant to different sports, maybe just to give a context for combat sport. And I'll rely on my experience in working within endurance sports to kind of paint the picture. Um. An endurance athlete, such as a long distance athlete, let's just take, for example, a marathon runner. A marathon runner will need a very, very strong aerobic capacity. So the ability to, to have and um, you know to perform over long distances require an aerobic power output. So their aerobic capacity will be very, very well developed. Now, there's a bit of a trade-off when we talk about capacities within aerobic or, or energy production. The larger the aerobic capacity, there tends to be a more, a more diminished anaerobic capacity. So with that in mind, um, if you've got a really well-developed aerobic capacity, if your um, aerobic power output is really, really strong, really, really high, you'll struggle to perform anaerobically. So those explosive combinations that you might throw from a combat sport perspective, your punches and your kicks are the are repeated you know repeated movements where you're, you're, you're uh, you know you're, you're slipping off and coming back in slipping off coming back in or changing levels or whatever the case may be depending on the sport if you've got an overly developed aerobic system you're going to struggle to try and access that, that high power uh, glycolytic anaerobic output if that makes sense and vice versa if you've got an overly developed anaerobic capacity so you you know you're you're a fast twitch um, tinder box of muscle, you know, and, and you, yeah, that's what I was just going to ask. So I was going to ask, yeah. but that come down to things like, you know, like you said, um, like muscle fiber type, even like the, 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 the ability to produce that fast twitch Absolutely. and explosive yeah. energy yeah. will be diminished if you are training yeah. like the slower twitch muscle fibers. Yeah, a hundred percent. So slow twitch muscle fibers are type one. Um, one of their major characteristics, and again, this is a very, very complex area, and we're going to try to keep it as simple as possible. One of their major com characteristics is that they they utilize oxygen very, very well, um, and and they uh, are able to function with aerobic energy production much better than fast twitch muscle fibers. So. They are uh, designed and built and developed in order to, to carry an athlete over a long distance while utilizing oxygen and, and free fatty acids to, to uh, produce energy. On the flip side to that, um, you know, an athlete who's predominantly fast twitch muscle fibers, and the downside is there's pros and cons to both. 
Um, the, the pro to fast twitch muscle fibers is that they are, they're, they're able to deal with high power outputs and you can rely on them to be explosive and springy. Uh, reaction speed will be up, all of these types of things, but they don't deal with oxygen uh, too well. They don't, they, they fatigue really, really quickly. And that's also a characteristic, characteristic of an athlete who have an overly developed um, anaerobic capacity. So for example, um, somebody who likes to be uh, explosive, who, who is springy on their feet, may find it difficult to get, uh, to get a, a performance across all of the rounds. And you'll see that their power output decreases as the rounds go on. The idea is to have a fine balance between all three energy systems where one, you can access that glycolytic power for those high intensity exchanges, have a, a well-developed um, aerobic foundation that allows you to recover from, and we'll, we'll talk about how that looks um, when, when we talk about the actual conditioning training for athletes, but the aerobic base, having a good aerobic foundation allows the athlete to recover in between those high intensity shots. So if myself and yourself are sparring, Jamie, and I come at you with a combination, I come at you again, and I come at you again, and then there's a low, so there's a work to rest ratio. And within that low, where we're sussing each other out again, the aerobic system is working in the background to use lactate and pyruvate and pull it into the Krebs cycle and make it make it um, make it produce more energy and more, more glycogen in order for me to go again. If I don't have that aerobic foundation, my glycolytic pathways are going to be flooded with lactate. And you might, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of it's it's generally accepted that there's a correlation between lactate and fatigue. So if there's an, an an accumulation of lactate in my system that the aerobic system can't function or can't deal with, I'm going to get tired a lot quicker. So the idea is to be able to train within a program, a, a prescribed program that allows you to have the fine balance between both, to be able to be explosive when you need to be, but to have that aerobic foundation to carry you through the round. When you sit down after the, the bell goes, it's your aerobic system that's going to take over and it's going to level things off. And the, the stronger your aerobic system, the faster you're going to recover within that round and allow you back onto your feet, nearly refueled in order to go again. And that's really relevant, I suppose, the longer the duration of the fight. So, for example, MMA athletes or, or pro boxers or pro kickboxers, where the rounds are now extended sometimes from five rounds to ten rounds, the aerobic capacity of the athlete now needs to be much higher than what it would be for an athlete that needs it for, say, two rounds or three rounds, if that makes sense, because they're relying on that aerobic foundation in order to fuel themselves a lot across a much longer duration of sports performance. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. 100% and I think I think even you can you you can potentially even see in a, in, a, in a contest like like I said like you all see in like pro boxing or MMA the guys who are explosive early but as it goes late then they kind of fade and you always yeah. see that you see the guys who maybe aren't that powerful or explosive but they yeah. can go for long periods they can they maintain the same level of output throughout the fight yeah. so like you can see that kind of um you can see it in how it plays out in a, even in a fight itself. You can see the athletes that are there, like even without having much knowledge around why that's happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, an experienced lie, you can you can kind of pick out the explosive, you know, the explosive athletes. And, and I had a couple training with me over the years, and one recently. I mean, she's still training, but she was an absolute spring on her feet. She, you know, her reaction speed, her 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 entry speed was was just unbelievable, and and still is. Her ability to throw shots and combinations was just incredible at, at speed. Her power output was massive. 
but she struggled big time with maintaining that power and that capacity to perform over the round. So the third round was always a struggle for her. And even though we tried to develop her aerobic foundation and build on that aerobic foundation, like even a, even a, a short duration jog, she didn't like it. Her physiology wasn't, wasn't designed for it. She was predominantly fast twitch muscle fiber. She was a tinderbox of power output. And this is one of the things that as sports scientists or conditioning coaches, when we go to work with athletes, something that we really need to understand is that we, we have to get to know the athlete and their physiology and their physical capabilities. There's no point, and it's actually detrimental to the athlete to take a one-size-fits-all conditioning because they just might not be physiologically designed in order to take on your program. So with that in mind, Jamie, we might start to talk about um, how the conditioning athlete or the sports scientist can actually impact on an athlete's conditioning. And I think a good starting point for that uh, would be uh, certainly something that I would do. And I'm working with a couple of athletes at the moment in that capacity, so it's kind of um, prescribing training programs. Um, one of the things I will do um, is I will need to, to conduct what we call a needs analysis with the athlete. So I need to get to know the athlete and I need to get to know the objectives of the athlete within, within their, their performance objectives. So I might, I might um, carry out a couple of tests. I might, I might get a, um, a force velocity profile on them, which will show gaps in, in their strength training, for example. If they're strength dominant, velocity weak if you know what I mean or vice versa which happens to be the case for a lot of combat athletes they'll they'll be skewed in terms of they'll be velocity dominant but not very strong because they don't engage in strength training and I'm being general here I know there are athletes that do engage in strength training in a very focused way I'll also I'll also try and get to know the athlete physiologically um, and, and that's akin to that's the same as um, an, a Formula One racing car. The first thing a mechanic will do is come and look under the bonnet, right? What's the car capable of? And before I know what the car is capable of, um, you know, I have to know what the car is capable of before I start giving it things to train on. So a physiological profile would mean running a number of physiological tests to determine the aerobic capacity of the athlete and the anaerobic capacity of the athlete. Um, and that can be done in a number of ways. Um, a lot of people will use a treadmill and a treadmill is fine for an introduction in terms of finding out what's happening under the bonnet. But ideally what you need to be doing is going into the camp with the athlete, allowing them to perform across the duration of their fight. So if you're working with an MMA athlete and you go into their camp and they've got test bars, for example, as a sports scientist or a conditioning coach, you, you should be there and you should be taking samples in between the rounds, which gives you a very specific idea of what's happening under the bonnet in real-time performance environment, not just on the treadmill. Because what the treadmill will do is it will obviously stress the legs and the lower limbs, which is fine in terms of kicking, but there's very little happening on the upper body. So it negates any boxing ability. So you're not actually testing the athlete fully. So an athlete who likes to punch a lot, and you're training or testing them on a treadmill, you're not getting a full picture of the athlete's performance ability. So you're taking measurements that are relevant to lower limb output as opposed to upper limb um, or, or, or punching output, for example. But having said that, we digress a little bit. Treadmills are useful and they're, they're useful for kind of getting an, an, introductory, uh, an introductory look at what the athlete is doing um, physiologically. Now, apart from all of that, and we'll talk about how that, that, those, that testing is done, you need to also understand the 
the performance ability of the athlete. What way do they like to fight? There's no point in if you if you like to move a lot around a lot, Jamie, and be explosive um, and rely on that anaerobic capacity. There's no point in me telling you that you have to start working on your aerobic in your aerobic ability straight away. I need to know what's your style of fighting. If you're a grappler, for example, and you spend most of the time trying to put people to the ground, well then there's very little there's very little reason for you to be working too much on your anaerobic capacity because you're actually taking away from your performance ability within the ranges that you like to perform. So I need to know all of this from the athlete. I need to talk to the coach. I need to watch the athlete training. I need to watch them performing in test bars. I need to, they need to know are they cutting weight? And if they're cutting weight, how are they cutting it? Because if it's done arseways, it will have a negative effect on their conditioning. I need to know who the opponent is, what the opponent style of fight is. Because if your opponent is a grappler, uh, you need to obviously work on strategies to avoid that. So the strategies that you're working on um, need to be relevant to the conditioning program that you're going to uh, that you're going to go on. And then obviously there's a nutritional strategy. You know, I'm not a nutritionist, but generally we will talk with the nutritionist, and the conditioning program will need to be married up with what the nutritional strategy is for the athlete. So there's a lot of work in uh, being a conditioning coach or working in the camp as a sports scientist that you need to have a really, really big overview of, of what the objectives of that athlete are and how they function when you lift the bonnet and, and look inside it. And, and unfortunately, and I suppose it's a capacity issue for a lot of people, if you go to a, a testing environment, a, a, lab, a performance lab, they'll just give you a snapshot of something. And you know the tests, the tests themselves are, are, are complex and you need to know how to do them properly and consistently and the protocols involved in those tests. But the interpretation of the test is really, really crucial. And that interpretation needs to be explicitly explained to the athlete and to the coach so that performance or that training program then is adhered to. Now, the athlete doesn't need to know the science of it. That is not, you know, they don't need to get into the detail of, of uh, glucose breakdown or the relationship between lactate and pyruvate or any of that kind of stuff, but they need to have a, a practical training program that is developed on the back of the science, the investigation into the athlete. And then you need to test and retest. You need to test again in six weeks, at a minimum six weeks, um, and, and keep testing. So you're actually either seeing progress in the, in the specific conditioning goals of the athlete, or you're actually seeing decrements. And if you're seeing decrements and it can happen, you need to tweak something. You need to intervene pretty quickly and change something because something's not working right. Um, so the conditioning culture of the sports scientists in the camp has a huge role to play, has a really important role to play. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, sometimes um, we don't, um, athletes don't have the, the luxury of having somebody in their camp like that, uh, which, is a, which is a real shame. Yeah, for sure. And in terms of like what like so like you said the first thing you want to do is like like you like you you put it is look under the hood look under the bonnet what's what what's the test that you would do like what are the go to kind of first couple of tests that you like yeah. to and that you would like to run with an athlete what's Yeah it? um I did a test there about 2 weeks ago with an athlete who's who's actually in in the run into to uh, an event so we didn't get time we didn't have that lead time to carry out all of the tests that you would like to like to do so it was a treadmill test and it's a lactate profiling test. So um, essentially what you do is you, you uh, allow the athlete to warm up. They go on the treadmill at a low intensity and they will perform that intensity for about five minutes in a, in a, in a steady state. You'll take a lactate reading um, or a blood sample from a capillary. So either on the fingers 
or from the earlobe. Generally, for combat sport athletes, if they're running, fingers are fine or the thumb is fine. If you're dealing with other athletes that need their hands like cyclists or rowers, and that, you know, you're probably better off taking the sample from the earlobe, and you, you might have seen that happening. So you use a portable lactate analyzer, and it'll give you a lactate reading, and you'll, you'll, um, you'll jot that down, you'll keep that data. And after the break, they'll do another five minutes, but it'll be at an increased intensity relevant to the RPE scale on that. And you'll, and you'll, repeat, you'll repeat that um, protocol in, in uh, testing lactate afterwards, jotting it down, keeping a track on heart rate, they'll have a heart rate monitor on them. Um, and you can, you can do it two ways. You can do it right up to where the athlete fatigues, so push them right up into that red zone until they can do no more, and then you take another lactate reading, and that's essentially where everything has just petered out and they can't, they can't continue anymore. And when you take all that information and put it into Excel and you let Excel do its magic, it gives you what's called a lactate curve. And you can kind of, um, you can work on that lactate curve and look at the relationship between intensity, lactate production and heart rate. That's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is to break the test into two. So you're testing aerobic capacity and testing anaerobic capacity. The aerobic capacity test will work up to in and, in and around what we call four millimoles, which is the measurement of lactate. So lactate measured in millimoles per liter and then you let the, the the athlete rest so that's at a moderate level you know, right up to just before what we call the lactate threshold and the threshold is kind of in theory the point where there's a change there's something happening the change within the uh, energy production or the energy energy pathways and um, because of the increase in intensity and on a lactate curve you'll see that as a point where the, the i don't know if you can see my finger here jamie but the the curve is pretty straight and then it'll start to rise. That rise represents an increase in lactate. And lactate is associated with energy production within the glycolytic pathway. So we can extrapolate from that then that the glycolytic energy system is now starting to become the predominant energy system. They're starting okay. to become anaerobic. And we can take from that um, a lot of information. But the aerobic test will test the athlete up to that point. Then they will take a break so we can determine their aerobic capacity within that test. They'll take a break for about half an hour and they'll refuel and hydrate. And once they feel that they're refreshed and you look at heart rate and make sure that they're rested again, and they'll get back on the treadmill in this case, and they will do a either a 30 second or a one minute all out test. And that again depends, the duration depends on the fitness levels of the athlete. So they'll go absolutely zero to 100 for those, say for example, 30 seconds. You'll take a lactate reading beforehand and you'll take a lactate reading at the end. But you'll also then sit them down for about 30 minutes and you'll take lactate readings during rest because lactate will continue to accumulate even on rest until the aerobic system comes in and starts to utilize it and clears it out and brings the body back down to resting rates again. And what you're doing is you're taking lactate to find the maximum, um, maximum rate of uh, lactate production. And you take all of that information and you put it back into Excel and there's a lovely mathematical equation that you can use. When I say lovely, it's quite complex. But it tells you, it gives you an output, which is um, the, what's called the VLA max. So the maximum volume, volume being a flux rate of lactate production within the anaerobic uh, capacity zone, if you like. And for uh, what that can tell us, so as a conditioning coach or as a sports scientist, when you do that, when you carry out that mathematical equation, it gives you numbers, and those numbers equate to certain things or can be associated with certain things. So if an athlete, after that anaerobic capacity test, had a VLA max of, say, 0.8, that's quite high. So they'd have a very, very um, high anaerobic capacity. 
if the anaerobic capacity is 0.8, you can be sure as hell that the aerobic capacity has been suppressed and the anaerobic capacity is the predominant um, preferred method for energy production. So a combat sport athlete, and again, it, it depends on the athlete. You can't say they should be in and around one, you know, 0.4 or 0.5. It depends on all of those, those other variables that we spoke about in terms of their um, style of fighting, their opponent, their lead time, their nutrition, all of that kind of stuff. That's why test retesting is really, really important. But to give you an idea from a test that we did in the lab in, in college a while back, it was with an endurance athlete, and they had a VLA max. So their measurement of anaerobic capacity was 0.2. That's really low. And that's good for them because if it's really low, it means they have a very, very well-developed aerobic capacity. Now, you may have heard also of VO2 max testing, which is a yeah, test. That's a, I was going to ask you about VO2. Is that yeah. a test? Because I, 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 I understanding again from uh, following some of your stuff online is you do talk a lot about the VO2 max uh, yeah. test. So yeah, yeah. where would that fit in yeah. for you? Absolutely. So the VO2 max is a slightly different test. The protocols are different. You don't take blood samples. And gas is analyzed. And you might have seen um, people when they do the test, they've got yeah. a big Bane-type mask on their face and the... They do they will often do what's called an incremental or a graded exercise test so again in stages the intensity is increased right to uh, volitional fatigue to where they can't go and what's being measured there is the exchange rate between uh, in some of the machines anyway can measure the exchange rate between oxygen and carbon dioxide and essentially what you're going to get out of the vo2 max test is the person or the athlete's aerobic capacity so their maximum aerobic potential um, is taken from a test like that and that's really useful it's really useful to have especially if you're an endurance athlete it's really useful to have if you're a short duration high power output sport your vo2 max is not probably not that important to you your vla max would be something that would be much more specific to your sport if you know what i mean so i like to when i'm explaining the difference between what a vo2 max test can tell you and what a lactate threshold test or a blood lactate test can tell you is that the VO2 max test will tell you how big the house is and it will show you the front door and the back door. So it can identify aerobic threshold, which correlates to the lactate threshold. And it can also, um, it can also show you what's called the anaerobic threshold. And that's a little bit of a misnomer. And people, like sports scientists will say, well, the anaerobic threshold actually doesn't exist. But just from, for, for the sake of this podcast, it can also identify that. Now, what a lactate threshold test will tell you is it will tell you the layout of the house and it will tell you the size of the rooms within the house. So it's a little bit more invasive because you're taking blood samples, but it tells you a little bit more um, about what's happening, the relationship between both energy systems. So you can't, for example, determine the VLA max or the anaerobic capacity per se from a VO2 max test. That has to be done from lactate testing because lactate has a direct association to energy production within those anaerobic pathways. And it's easily measured because once it's done in the muscle and there's no more room for it in the muscle, it's dumped into the bloodstream, part of what's called the lactate and shuttle. And that's where we pick it up in capillaries, such as in the fingers and in the blood. So I'm not saying the VO2 max tests are totally, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're of no use. They are, of, of course, of use, but they have their limitations especially for, for shorter duration um, sports where the overall aerobic capacity is probably not as relevant as the anaerobic capacities or the relationship between the two. Yeah. I, and one thing I suppose maybe it's worth asking it because I think it might be something that a lot of athletes um, 
especially in, in, in commerce sports uh what's the, the what would be the cost and i suppose the accessibility to some of these tests especially to somebody who's a, an amateur combat sports uh athlete it's a, it's a, that's, a, that's a great question and and i suppose it depends it depends on the environment and that you're training in so there are people available in ireland to to work with in, the, in this capacity um i mean i'm i'm, I'm one of them and uh, there are other people there are other companies who run um uh, like vo2 max testing and metabolic testing and, and stuff like that information is wild widely available on on the internet but it really depends on the environment and I suppose the the outlook of the coach and the people around the athlete. Some coaches don't like their athletes stepping outside of their environment or bringing people into their environment. Some coaches are insecure in terms of their their lack of knowledge. And I say that specifically because there is a massive lack of knowledge within sports science and strength and conditioning within combat sport in general, not just in Ireland, but across the world, especially at amateur level. Um, I think that's very prevalent from what you might see. Um, on social media and that. In terms of cost, I mean, years ago, you would have only found these types of services in human performance labs, which are generally, if they're not private companies set up by, um, you know, by sports scientists, and you can find them attached to universities. Uh, for example, UCD, um, I know there's one in Trinity, and I think there's one in DCU, but they're bloody expensive. So if you're in a test retest, retest scenario all through your camp, if you really want to make sure that you're focused in your training program and you want to get the best out of your preparation, you could be paying between 70 and 80 euros a trip just for one potential lactate test. Mm-hmm. If you put, or VO2 max test for that case, if you put body composition testing on top of that, you could be putting an extra 40 or 50 quid on it. Um, and that's that's through the performance labs, which would be quite expensive. But I'm sure, like working with conditioning coaches and developing relationships with conditioning coaches that are out there, um, I'm sure the cost can be massively reduced uh, to help athletes get a kind of a good understanding of their own physical qualities and their own physiological capacities. Um, it's about networking and reaching out to people, asking questions, getting to know people. There's a lot of conditioning coaches out there who have come through university degrees um, may have even taken up uh, conditioning coaches online and stuff like that. Now there's obviously a, a, there's a discrepancy in, in knowledge between having a university degree and coming through a six week or an eight week course, looking at conditioning online and stuff like that. But the information is out there. The information is all over the internet. It's up to athletes to embrace the fact that one, they might not, they might not know what they actually need to know. And two, the coaches need to have the confidence in order to bring somebody into the camp who just might know something a little bit more than they do in terms of conditioning and coaching. And, and that's one of the downfalls to, uh, to combat sport. I think we suffer massively with outdated traditional methods handed down through the years that end up with athletes that are training totally blind. Um, just, you know, and, and, and when I say combat sport suffers a lot from that, it does in relation to running. So this is something that's been handed down, I think, from boxing from generations and generations you have this aimless running, just doing lots and lots of road work. And I'm not against running at all, but I'm absolutely against aimless running, this junk miles, this um, just accumulating miles for the sake of it. And you see it all the time. And even, even you know, guys that I know personally and the post up on, inter- on the internet about it, just finished a 10K run and it took me 40 minutes. Well, that's great. <laughs> if you're a runner... <laughs> And you're yeah. time trialing for 10K, that's brilliant. But in relation to your preparation and performance in combat sport, 
it might mean absolutely nothing. And in worst case scenario, you could be absolutely doing yourself a disservice because it could be actually decreasing your performance ability. Why? Because you have absolutely no idea what the relationship is between your aerobic capacity and your glycolytic anaerobic capacity, which you need as a combat sport athlete. And just hogging out kilometers after kilometers after kilometers is going to massively and negatively impact your ability to be an explosive athlete. You'll be a really good runner, but you might not necessarily be a really good combat sport athlete. And to compound that, well, I'm on a little bit of a rant now, Katie. You are good. When an athlete doesn't get the performance that they want and they don't get the win, what do they do? They go back and repeat the same fecking nonsense over and over again, except they just do it more, thinking that they're going to get a better outcome. And it's incredible. And some of these guys are, are now what you term professional combat sport athletes. Now, you don't have to have too much experience these days to, to be a pro fighter. And it seems that anyone can get signed up regardless of whether you actually do the sport or not. But if you're going to be a professional fighter, you need to have a professional approach to your, your performance, your training program. And it's absolutely you're killing yourself just doing things for the sake of doing things. That's not only around road work and running. You could go in and be blasting the bag out. You know, I did 10 rounds on the bag at, at high intensities. And you, know, you get a picture of the heart rate monitor and the spikes are all over the place. They have the clue what it means, but the colors look lovely on Instagram. What does it mean in terms of your physical preparation and your conditioning at that point in time? Having a clue. There's a huge gap of knowledge and a huge gap of information within combat sport. And athletes are suffering performance-wise, stress-wise, psychologically, because they're not getting the right information that they need in order to perform properly for their sport. And that's a huge, it's a huge problem. I'm sure, look, I'm sure it exists in other sports. Combat sport, my God, is just one of those sports that suffers from this nonsense tradition getting passed down from generation to generation. You're not running long miles, you're not performing, and it's the biggest yeah. amount of bullshit you'll ever find. Yeah, that is the thing that is passed down. Like, you have to get the miles in on the road, isn't it? Like, you have to get up in the morning and put put in the slog and get out on the road. Oh, and uh... yeah, It's incredible. It's, it's, it's sad, you know. It's sad because the information that's, that's required for optimal preparation and optimal performance is not hard to find anymore, Jamie. It's out there. People are out there in sports. You've got, I mean, within Taekwondo, you've got a lot of very uh, knowledgeable people, such as Adrian and Richie and yourself and others, who would be able to steer athletes in the right way in terms of their own performance. And, and within kickboxing, people are there. But in other sports, boxing, I think, from an amateur point of view, suffers a lot with it. We coach a little bit in a, in a local boxing club, and sometimes you see that, you know, kind of an overemphasis on heading off for a run. Um, without fully understanding the physiology and the physical qualities or the physical needs of that particular athlete, you know, so it's a one size fits all. Everyone heads off on a 5k run or a 10k run. Um, yeah, so it's a little bit of a bugbear of mine, and that's why I share a lot on Instagram and share a lot to try and get through to people. I don't, I don't pinpoint people, I don't contact people directly, I put the information out there and hope that um, people might use it and people are free to contact me at any time if they needed a hand or some advice in relation to any of that, which some athletes have uh, recently and I've managed to get to them um, even within COVID and just have all the safety protocols in place in order to give them a little bit of a steer in their conditioning program. Yeah, that's what more people do, take to take take the opportunity to, to look up some of the information. Um, yeah. But I suppose yeah, exactly. um, just to look at... Uh, if you saw, if you work with an athlete and we'll say maybe 
their aerobic uh, fitness capacity was quite low. What sort of training yeah. would you look to do? Like, how would a train? How would you set up a training program for? I suppose maybe yeah. de- depending. I suppose because again, it's depending on yeah. the areas that need work. But well, mm-hmm. how would you kind of go about it, uh, setting up a training program? Yeah. D- depending on. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. needs work? It's, yeah, it's a great question. Um, and and generally from from my experiences um, in in dealing with with kickboxers in particular, because they're and they're kind of the opposite to sometimes to, to boxers, they don't kind of um, they don't engage with the, the long distance steady state and endurance capacity work so that long distance road running at, at particular threshold points they engage in high intensity um, training all of the time um, and generally what their their lactate profile will look like will be kind of a straight line going from, from start right to finish going straight up so there's no gradual increase which is the aerobic capacity or the aerobic foundation it, it starts at zero there's a little bit of, of um, there's a little there's a little bit of a straight line and then it shoots up, so that immediately tells you that there's a deficiency, there's an aerobic deficiency there somewhere, um, and again depending on on the athlete, depending on on the sport, depending on the, the, the lead in, you take need to take all of these things into consideration, but just recently I was working with an athlete who did have, excuse me, who did have that um, lactate profile, so their aerobic uh, conditioning was was practically zero. Um, and they need because they were they were going to be or are going to be involved in a fight that's going to have a long duration. So it's an MMA fight. There was an absolute need for this athlete to focus on developing as much as she can uh, an aerobic foundation. So what we did was we looked at her training plan and training program, and um, we suggested that she gets some um, some long distance runs in. Now I know I've just been ranting. Again, runs but those runs are aimless runs there's no pinpoint intensity to focus at so what we did was we we found a point on our lactate curve that was associated with a, with a, a heart rate which is associated with a particular intensity and we gave her a program to run at this intensity for long distance so this is if you want to if you want to increase um, a parameter within your physiology you need to stress that parameter okay that's a basic training principle you need to apply stress to it so we needed to shift her lactate threshold to the right a little bit and um, she needed to to stress that data point which is relevant to her heart rate so she put on her heart rate monitor and go for a run for about 45 minutes to an hour and what we also suggested was that we that she should do some of that uh, work in a fasted state now, there's a lot of conversations there about fasted cardio and what it does and what it doesn't do. And there's a lot of, um, I suppose there's a lot of myths and miscommunications and misunderstanding around it. What fasted cardio can do is that it can actually start to train the body to use fat as um, a substrate for energy production. And fat and free fatty acids and triglycerides are the preferred substrate for the aerobic energy system. An athlete who has an overly developed anaerobic glycolytic system will automatically start tapping into carbohydrate, which is the preferred fuel substrate for anaerobic energy production. This is where you see that um, sudden increase in the lactate uh, graph because lactate is directly associated and correlated with anaerobic energy production, which relies on carbohydrate. So the athlete will be conditioned to use to, to be using carbohydrate for fuel, even at low intensities. So to try and to try and level that relationship out a little bit with the aerobic um, energy pathway, we might ask the athlete to do a little bit of this conditioning fasted, which means 
that the athlete will be um, carb depleted going in to do that um, particular run, for example, in this case. That means the body now has to start to utilize facts, uh, fat um, to, uh, to produce energy within that aerobic pathway. The myth or the misunderstanding around fasted cardio is that it can be done for weight loss. And that's not how weight loss works. It's a lot, it's a lot more complex and relies much heavily on, on calorie intake and calorie expenditure. And there's a whole lot more that goes into that. But you can actually use fasted cardio to, uh, to try and treat the symptoms of, of aerobic deficiency syndrome, which is called within endurance sports, and can use it quite efficiently. Now, some of the, uh, the feedback from, from this athlete who started on the program about four weeks ago now has about four or five weeks left before they compete is that they're already feeling the benefits of training at low intensity, at low intensity to develop that aerobic base before they would have struggled getting through the longer rounds of MMA. But now they're actually finding that they can get through the rounds, recover quite quickly and get back into it for the second and third round. So while we didn't have the luxury of a long lead in time and get to know that athlete um, through that needs analysis that I spoke about earlier, the one thing that we could do was to target that aerobic foundation, that aerobic development, because it was really obvious from the test that we did do that it was pretty non-existent. And that's something that's really common across athletes. And, and this particular athlete would have came from kickboxing, so would have had that short duration, shorter rounds, high, high power output, but for, but for shorter times. But now moving into a sport which is longer, much longer in duration, even in individual rounds and the number of rounds, uh, but also also needed that uh, ability to be explosive in, when she needed to be. So that's 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 something that you can do in order to target the aerobic foundation. The longer lead in time, obviously, the better because you can spend more time at it, and then you can test, test retest, retest, yeah, and then and then have a look at how the aerobic capacity is actually. Um, and how it's buffering up against the anaerobic capacity and making sure that there's a, there's a fine balance there. And again, you need to, you know, testing is one thing, but the real performance test is the performance itself. So the athlete needs to be yeah. performing and then reporting back about how they're feeling. You know, was there an increase in energy? You know, did they feel more explosive? How do they feel on the round? Getting, getting back out of the, uh, getting, getting up off the stool off, after the break and back into the fight again. There's a lot of reporting, there's a lot of data collection, um, and any sports scientist that's working with athletes will have this and will have all of this data kind of compiled over many years of working uh, with the athletes. So a conditioning coach or a sports scientist is not just for your camp, but it's for all of the time, even outside of the camp, so you can monitor certain physiological changes while you're not in camp and stuff like that. Yeah. So I suppose maybe on the flip side, if you had an athlete who had a very good aerobic base, but yeah. they were anaerobically not the best, like they had a, a low lactate threshold. Um, what sort of work yeah. would you, what sort of way, maybe how would you program for that sort of athlete then on the flip side? Yeah. So a low lactate threshold would indicate that they would have high, uh, high reliance on glycolytic uh, pathways. Um, and it's, it's, it's the flip, it's the flip of it, Jamie, to be honest with you. Um, if you, if you're overly developed within your anaerobic capacities, you need to do less of it. You need to tone it down a little bit and do more of the low intensity stuff. Vice versa, for if you've got um, an overly developed anaerobic capacity, you need to do less of it and you need to do a little bit more work around developing your anaerobic capacity. So that's your high intensity interval training, your Tabata, your fart leg training, um, your explosive work in the gym. 
So weight training um, within kind of the, the power development. So lifting, uh, you know, 60% of your, 60 to 70% of your one rep max as fast as you possibly can. Elicits fast twitch muscle fiber development. And um, obviously then feeds into your um, ability to, to develop power anaerobically. So you might do a little bit more of that and a little bit less of your um, aerobic work, a little bit less of your, your low intensity work, or maybe remove it altogether for, for maybe a couple of weeks of your, of your program. Again, it really depends on the physiological characteristics of the athlete. But the overall principle is to, if you want to increase one, well, then you have to reduce the other. That's the simple, that's the simple answer, uh, Jamie, I suppose. Yeah. And would you have a preference, I suppose, particularly with the high intensity stuff of um, maybe specific uh, in terms of like sports specific, would you like to see like if it's high intensity, maybe hitting a pad versus on a bike or a rower or a machine, would you prefer to see maybe on the pads, on the, ba on the bag, but like you said, not just coming in and aimlessly hitting the bag, but would you prefer to see the, I suppose, using the, the techniques that would be used in a competitive contest? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, the principle of specificity really, isn't it, in terms of bringing yeah. your pre preparation as close to your performance as, as you possibly can. And explosive repeats on the pad would be one of the ways of doing that where they're also building kind of reactive strength through all that too. And you might see intervals on the bag, on the heavy bag, where you're all out for whatever, 30 seconds, and then you've got 15 seconds of a break, and then you're 30 seconds on again, monitoring heart rate and trying to push your heart rate into those max heart rate zones as far as possible making sure that you're adequately rested. And this is one of, this is one of the mistakes that people make with pure, in, in, a, in the purest sense, high intensity interval training, is that you, 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 you burst for as long as you can and you do that for over a round, so 30 on, 15 off, and then you take them in a break. But in fact, for your training, you need to take as much of a break as needed until you're in a rested state, so you go again. Because what you're doing is you're only overly stressing and at that stage, you just keep piling on the intensity they're yeah. actually allowing your body to rest and recover and then go again yeah it's a it's a common mistake i actually but just saw I something like even me. that week i actually just even saw something this week that is a lot of that's just in just just in general but high intensity training is you know people decide maybe they're going to do like like you said 30 seconds on 15 seconds off and i'm going to do that five yeah. rounds but the 15 yeah. seconds off might not be enough that you'd be much better because then exactly. the next round isn't 30 seconds high intensity like eventually like yeah. if it, it's dropping off to you're not your highest intensity you know you're spot on and your power is going to decrease yeah. all through that so the idea is to um you know allow enough rest where you know fuel supply is back in it's replenished glycogen stores are replenished atp pcr is replenished and you go again rather than just keep chipping away at it chipping away at it until you're absolutely knackered and that's not that's not the the principle behind high intensity interval training another protocol that i like to use for for my athletes is, is actually uphill running it's great for the legs and it's, it's, it's safe for the legs. So we're not, and again, I mean general, but I mean, in my experience, we're not trained sprinters in, in the purest sense. And sprinting on the flat ground puts a hell of a lot of eccentric load on the hamstrings. And this is where hamstring injuries happen a lot. I know I tried flat, flat, ground, uh, flat, flat ground sprinting and wrecked my hamstring because of it, thinking I was saying both. But uphill running takes, because of the incline, takes the eccentric load off the hamstring puts a lot of concentric load on, on, the, uh, on the quadricep and the front of the body um, and, and obviously can, can elevate heart rate right up in those high intensity, um, into those high intensity zones. So uphill running is really, really useful, as is, for example, um, using the Watt bike or the suicide bike, as it's called, I think it's a funky name. Uh, again, just pump, you know, pumping out. And the, best, the, the great thing about those bikes is that you're also pumping your arms 
as well. So your arms are, are, are your your arm muscles are also getting then kind of nearly a sport specific movement under those um, high intensity yeah. loads. Yeah, the bike so, is so, But there's lots of yeah, there's lots yeah. of ways. There's lots of different protocols. Uh, you can do fartlek training, which is training, uh, you know, training at threshold. So doing something at your threshold heart rate and then blasting into high intensity and then coming back to to threshold as opposed to just resting. Tabata is there for a long time. It's just it's just you know it's just all out and um, all out physical movement at high intensity for as long as you can and then resting uh, as well. So there's lots of protocols, lots of different ways to do it. Coaches can be creative. Uh, and I think you're right. I think it's best to try and keep that particular activity um, as close to the specific movement patterns of the sport. I think that's where, especially the closer you're getting to your to your competition or to your event, you need to be spending more time within that kind of specific uh, movement patterns. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the bike, like you said, the the, the bike you, where you're using the, the arms and the legs. The, I think that is, um, yeah. Personally, it's one I've used, and uh, like that is, I find that it does really mimic. Um, a fight condition like you said the legs are feeling it the arms are feeling sure. it and like that you have yeah. the lungs as well that you're trying to get air into the lungs and your legs are yeah. burning and the arms are burning so yeah. it's like even yeah, you feel it's, quite it, it's the same feeling yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 it's quite useful yeah quite useful. so I suppose you've kind of mentioned as well in terms of like weight training where does weight training as well and fit in around all this for you uh, it's really important it's really important and it's an area of physical training that's often disregarded um, and maybe disregarded because there's there's no access to um, you know to access to weights for athletes to kind of to throw around. Um, you know, fundamental to all sport performance is the ability of the athlete to express force. If you're if you have not got the muscular endurance or strength needed in order to beat and to overcome an opponent, and well then you're going to suffer. Um, I mean, strength training is directly, uh, you know, improving your strength or improving your ability to express force. So in a, in a simplistic term, from a combat sport point of view, that means how fast can you get your leg, your back leg up into a turning kick and land it on the target with maximum force into your target. Without strength training, without training the muscle to be able to push into the ground, to move at speed, to move at velocity into the target, well, then you're already on the back foot. If the other person has a good base and strength training, they're going to be faster and they're going to be more conditioned and they're going to hit you harder. This is really relevant for MMA um, in relation to grappling, holding people into position. The stronger person is going to be able to hold the other person into in position. It's as simple as that. And and I know I mentioned as part of the needs analysis there when you're when you're working with an athlete. So from the strength perspective. Uh, you, you would run what's called a force velocity profile, a very simple exercise. You need a little bit of technology with it um, in order to map and to um, measure the velocity that the bar is moving at or the weight is moving at uh, relevant to the load that's on it. Um, and you would, do, you would do particular exercises maybe relevant to the sport. So I'd say a back squat would be pretty relevant to developing kind of lower limb power for combat sport. And you'd measure the velocity of the bar and that velocity then is extrapolated. Those that data is extrapolated, and you can actually then um, pull a graph together. We love graphs uh, within Excel, which which looks at the relationship or the inverse relationship between strength and velocity. And you should uh, you should see, um, I suppose, maybe a, a, a trend line starting at the top and moving down at about forty five degrees, which kind of shows a really good relationship between strength and velocity. If you've, got, if you've got a trend line that starts with strength at the top here and just drops straight down, well, then you know then that there's a gap in the velocity training or the speed training within the athlete. 
and vice versa in terms of uh, velocity versus strength. So it's really, really important that just from a conditioning point of view, even that the athlete is engaged in a strength training program, not only for performance, not only to help performance, but to also manage injuries. So the stronger athlete, the athlete who is engaged in strength training will in general be a little bit more resistant to injury, not even a little bit more, but a lot more resistant yeah. uh, to injury, um, which is obviously very, very important, especially for, for professional athletes or athletes who are training within, within elite sport. The stronger athlete is always going to get the, is always going to get the upper hand regardless. And strength, as they say, strength above all else. I mean, every athlete, every combat athlete needs to have uh, themselves under a bar and uh, moving functionally through squat movements and movement patterns, pressing, pushing, pulling is really important, obviously, for grappling. Um, especially if you're in uh, BJJ and you've got, you know, you're wearing you're wearing the gi and you've got control of the sleeves and the collars and stuff, and you need to pull people into position. If you're not developing your pulling capacity through strength training, well, then you're missing out on you're missing out massively. And if the other, if your opponent is, well, then guess who's winning that exchange at that time? So, yeah, strength training has a massive will have massive performance benefits um, for all athletes. And if you're a if you're a combat athlete and you're not engaged in strength training, you need to ask yourself why. Because as I said to you, not only from a performance point of view, from an injury management perspective, but when you then retire from combat sport strength training kind of and mobility training the, the uh, movement health i suppose that you get from strength training will, will will aid you and assist you long into retirement in terms of keeping a very fit body and a body that's able to move athletically even into your 40s 50s and 60s yeah i think like you said though, like strength training like it can be quite evident i suppose in like you said in MMA or Jiu Jitsu where there's a lot of whether strength is a big thing but like you know, I suppose maybe sure. from a kickboxing or maybe a taekwondo point of view where like the strongest yeah. athlete maybe necessarily doesn't win but them being strong yeah. and taking up and like you said engaging in strength training means that person yeah. is probably going to be more explosive and all that and they're, they're the qualities that you need but you can't yeah. become more explosive yeah. without getting yourself stronger so like yes, there is absolutely you know where the, the, the raw strength and, like the raw strength yeah. maybe isn't the factor yeah. of why the person wins but that carries over to yeah. the other physical qualities then absolutely uh, it, it does for sure and that force velocity that force velocity relationship an increase in strength for example results in an increase in force production and velocity at the other end so if you want to increase the the strength of your lead sidekick um you, you know, you, you, can, you can do that, but it's a limited approach by just training your lead sidekick. But if you get your legs under, under the bar and you start to work your squat and, you know, your deadlift and, and you know, all those relevant kind of um, weightlifting movement patterns to, to kicking off the front leg, when you develop that strength capacity, you then start to work on your power output. So you start to go down that strength training continuum. And you've increased your strength capacity you start to work on power development then you start to work on your your capacity to be fast to be to be explosive but you can you can only be explosive within those limited kind of parameters uh, what you have physiologically physically at that point in time unless you actually strengthen your muscles and increase your rate of force production so one is directly related to the other if I want to have a fast lead and a strong lead leg psychic, you know that psychic that hits you like it's been driven by a car, you know? Yeah. That's the type of psychic that you want off your front leg, not one that's just going to glance off you. And the athlete who's physically stronger and who may engage in strength training in order to develop that psychic will have that type of that stable, strong psychic that hits you 
uh, like you've been hit by a truck. And that can only be done by developing the strength capacities of the athlete or in increasing their rate of force production, their ability to express force. And the further down you get that strength training continuum where you get plyometrics and start to work on that kind of stretch shortening cycle capacity of, of the limbs, in, in, again, to kind of um, develop the overall power output of, of, of the kick. So everything is related within the strength training continuum, right from strength capacity down to velocity and speed is related and, 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 and the same is related then to your conditioning training as well. So there's no point in being super strong if you're not actually physically conditioned in order to last the duration of the round and recover and, and continue. Yeah. So yeah, they're blood, they're blood cousins, strength training and conditioning. Hence why you have strength and conditioning coaches. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think we've maybe even, we, we've touched on maybe one or two of them, but what is, that, is there any other, I suppose, uh, myths or things that you see repetitively done around combat sports and uh, the yeah. industry that, that kind of are pet peeves maybe? Yeah, there's, there's, there's lots, I suppose, Jamie. Um, oh, I mean, one of them from a nutritional point of view, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll, I'll hands up, I'm not a nutritionist, although I've got a pretty you know, decent understanding of nutrition and uh, how it relates to performance. But one of, one, of the big, one of the big issues that you'll find with combat sport athletes, and from my experience, I'm not, again, I'm not being general, um, is that athletes will tinker around with their nutrition in order to, to cut weight. And, they'll, and I'll use the term directly, they'll prick around with ketogenic diets. <laughs> you, know, you know, diets that are high in fat and low in carbs. And, and it's, incre- it's absolutely mind-blowing because the information is out there. Ketogenic diets have been proven to have detrimental effects on performance sports that rely on high power outputs. And it's incredible. You see combat sport athletes all the time going on these stupid ketogenic diets. Now, when I say stupid, I'm talking about stupid within the context of this discussion for combat sport. There are other um, benefits to ketogenic diets, and there is science to say that they actually assist in endurance athlete performance in, in, in some capacity. But from a, from a combat sport performance perspective, they don't work. They are the absolute opposite to what a combat sport athlete needs. But because some gobshite on the internet has said ketogenic diet works for weight cutting, um, so I'll try that. Yeah, sure, you're going to lose weight because you're actually going into a calorie deficit, but you're also going to lose your ability to perform. And I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen. I remember a couple of years back, a kickboxing athlete saying that they were going on a ketogenic diet because they had a pretty strict weight cut to make uh, and got advice from a nutritionist. Um, it was beyond me. And, and the performance suffered. And, you know, the result was, the result that that athlete got was a reflection of that. Um, but it's, it's out there. Um, athletes are, are taking nonsense off the internet. There's no critical evaluation. There's no... Um, you know, there's no there's no research put into it. Does this actually work? Will this work for me? And they just take it at face value and head off down the road of, of high fat diets, low carb um, diets. I mean, if you're on a weight cut and you're worried about carbohydrate, uh, your focus is on the wrong is on the wrong subject. Carbohydrate is, is your is your best friend. But you can periodize your carbohydrate intake. So on high high activity days or training days or performance days, you will increase your carbohydrate intake. On rest days, you might decrease it and increase your protein intake, for example. There's lots of performance nutritionists out there that are very easily accessible these days that you can go and get a, get a plan from them for really good, you know, for value for money for a month. And they'll put you on the right track. You know, nutritionists who have 
come through university degrees, they're dietitians, they're masters, PhD candidates, PhD holders, they're available to combat sport athletes. Go and talk to them. Don't get your nonsense off some jackass who's done a six-week course on Instagram and is now using all of this lovely terminology to try and lure people in to buy programs off them and you end up suffering because of it. That's also a rant. <laughs> That's also uh, a rant. Yeah, I was wondering, definitely, I do... Um... Yeah, I've seen I've seen myself. You like look to be honest. Look, a ketogenic diet is nearly something I've probably even tried myself at an early where I like with less less knowledge. You know. Yeah, like yeah. Seven yeah. eight years ago, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, it even it wasn't really even a ketogenic diet for me. It was it, you you get hearing all that thing of oh carbs are the enemy. So then you're like oh well I have to get rid of them and you know carbs are uh, the enemy. You do hear that a lot. Yeah. But even like uh, there's been a, a number of people even from the team like have came to me and the week before they're looking look i still have this bit of weight to lose can you help me yeah. out and you and i would yeah. give them like a protocol to follow in terms of you know fiber intake and sodium intake and yeah. you're getting you're getting yeah. water loading and you're getting in it's like okay maybe this day stop eating carbohydrates and they're coming back and saying i haven't eaten carbs in two months and i'm going well <laughs> i go what the, I go, yeah. like you're going, what the fuck like you know what i mean that's what i'm saying like it's yeah and yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. like oh it's like that. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of myths and there's 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 a lot of um there's a lot of silly things done um within amateur ranks anyway when it comes to, to weight cutting and again like anything with sport performance and sport science then there's a needs analysis that needs to be conducted at the start of, of, of a weight cut or weight management. Uh, first of all, can you lose it? Have you got the capacity to lose it? First and foremost, and um, you know get the obviously you have to take body composition measurements between fat mass and lean body mass and, and everything that's around that and then you try and develop a strategy that's going to help them work keep them performing and training at optimal levels in, in, in amateur combat sport we tend to just go all in start cutting out carbs worse again reducing your calorie intake completely without even knowing what your baseline calorie intake should be so you're resting metabolic rate Hear absolute horror stories people posting up Oh my God, like it's just as an average, maybe your resting metabolic rate is 1500 calories that you need just to lie on the floor and not die. And they're like, I'm on a thousand calories, yeah. or they're taking in 1500 calories, but going on these long distance runs, which could burn maybe six, seven, or even like six, seven, eight hundred calories. So they're in a massive calorie deficit. And then they wonder why females lose their menstrual cycle. You know, men's testosterone levels start to crash, mood starts to change, can't sleep, feeling sick, injury happens. Again, just kind of walking into this very complex area with their, I was going to say their head up their ass, but they won't, but kind of their finger in the air, uh, hoping they'll get it right. This is your health you're dealing with. You know, you have to get, you have to engage with professionals. You have to engage with people who have the knowledge and the experience. They're out there. They're not hard to find. And coaches should be engaging with them and athletes should be engaging with them. Yeah, I suppose big things like that, like that is, is an athlete not being afraid to ask. I suppose sometimes they can be afraid to ask, or you know, in cases like, in case it's a stupid yeah. question, but most of the time it's it's probably not. It's probably a very valid question to just ask somebody who's potentially in the know. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. You know, the the stupidest question is the one that's not asked. Yeah. You know, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's, it's, it's very it's very true, relevant, yeah. especially for sport performance. Yeah, because your 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 health is at your health and your overall well being is at stake. You know, as well as obviously your um you know your, your performance levels and you know you want to be in the best shape that you possibly can be and i know we're kind of talking about um you know sports science inter- interventions between strength conditioning nutrition etc um 
and they're, they're kind of like if you walk, if you, like within the, the Olympic program, the Olympic sport program I'm involved in and work, we have access to all of these people through the Sports Institute, Sport Ireland Institute, and that. Um, and it's kind of commonly expected within um, elite sport that all of these, uh, the sports science and medical support is there. It's a given. It can sometimes be a little bit maybe. Uh, what's the word for, for an amateur athlete, just a little bit over the top or maybe just a little bit um, a little bit, you know, uh, concerned or worried about having all of that information in their camp that they might not be able to understand it or just be a little bit bowled over by it. And in general, people tend to steer away from things that they don't know anything about, which is a, which is a real pity. But again, the information is out there. People are out there. And, and oh. Nutritionists are coaches. They're nutrition coaches strength and conditioning coaches, their fundamental philosophy is to help people. If their fundamental philosophy is to make money off you, you need to move away from them because they'll sell you a pup. Get to know the good coaches that are really genuinely interested in their own field, but also wanting to see you improve as a person, as a, as a sport athlete. Yeah. Uh, what's, your, what's your take? I know you've mentioned it kind of a couple of times, but in terms of sitting down versus standing between their rounds. Oh, yeah. Is there any it's a complex one. Is there a there is. It, it's actually because... Yeah. Because um, for me, I think it was, I started, I would always sit down and I think it was always a thing, you know, when you were a kid and you, were, you, you didn't have a chair there. And then I kind of, once the chair was put there and there was the opportunity to sit down, I was like, there was like a yeah. novelty of sitting down and then I just yeah. would always sit down. Yeah. But then I was kind of feel, feeling like only maybe in the last year, I was like, you know, when I'm training in between spars or anything, like, I never sit down. You know, I'm always standing. Yeah. So then why sit yeah. down? So then I just started like, oh, sure, I'll just stand. And I didn't feel, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I actually felt better standing and just kind of going back in yeah. you know versus sitting down yeah. and letting the legs feel like they're heavy or anything would you is there I know, yeah, would you yeah. have a preference or is there any difference or is there anything behind uh, it or? My, my, to be honest with you as a coach my preference is what the athlete's preference is so if an athlete yeah. wants to sit down well then they should sit down uh, and that's fine but from a purely physiological perspective there is science and I, I, I haven't I haven't read into it too much but I have come across research that was done and you can extrapolate from this research into for example sitting down or walking in between rounds and it, it again there's a lot of it depends within there so if you've got and this is probably relevant to to taekwondo and to point fighting in a way because they share similarities in a way um if you've got if you've got um if you've got a performance that relies a lot on kind of waiting and exploding waiting and exploding the predominant energy uh, pathway that's functioning there is the phosphor creatine energy pathway and during, during a break, in between a break, what's needed to replenish ATP stores or creatine stores or phosphate stores for that particular type of performance is the, is, uh, aerobic, the aerobic base. So the thinking behind it is that if you're moving in between rounds, you're stimulating aerobic energy pathways, which means that you're going to replenish those fuel sources much faster than just sitting down. Now, there's a lot of it depends because there has been no specific studies done on whether standing or walking or sitting in between rounds um, tells us A or tells us B. And if, if it does exist, I'm not, I'm not familiar with it, but I don't think there's been any particular studies done. But that is kind of the, the thinking behind it. If you're moving in between rounds, there's a chance that you're going to replenish fuel stores much quicker than just sitting down. But again, that depends. So if you've got a longer, if, you, if you've got a, a longer um, performance, so you've got longer rounds and many more of them, sitting down is absolutely going to help because you're going to be relying on the aerobic base that you have trained anyway to come in and sit with you in the corner when you're on the break. Yeah. Where if you're an explosive athlete, the points are taekwondo, 
um, where maybe that massive aerobic base is not needed, so you might not have to train it. There is a suggestion there that might say that walking in between rounds might actually help with the recovery. Yeah. It'd be a really interesting study to uh I think so, yeah. I think do. It would if be. it's if it's not done already, I don't think it's done. I don't yeah. think it's done, but it, it would be really interesting. Because yeah, even for me, even like like I said, when I've done rounds on the bike and I've got off the bike, it's like if I sit down straight away, it's like that feels worse than even for me. Like yeah. I, I prefer to be walking around until yeah. until and then it's like right now I can sit down. Yeah, especially yeah, yeah. especially like I said, if I know like I have to do another round after or another yeah. two rounds, it's like yeah. stopping sure. stopping totally for me is like that's for when you're done. Yeah. If you have more rounds, yeah, yeah. just keep moving and kind of just keeping a bit of a flow. Like just break the heart rate down, get air in, and then go again. Absolutely. Like it's just like I Absolutely. said, it's it's all anecdotal stuff. But that's for me. I nearly feel it like is. moving is uh, yeah. can be better. Yeah, yeah, it can be. And I mean, uh, what what's happening with the aerobic system when you start to move at those lower intensities? The aerobic system will utilize lactate, so it'll actually pull lactate in and start to reproduce energy from it. So having that aerobic base and then stimulating that through movement, it's like it's like an active recovery session yeah. essentially. So. You're, you're moving in between your rounds if that's what you prefer to do um, and that aerobic system then is going to utilize lactate so keep lactate accumulation at a level where you can continue to perform at high levels again it very much depends it very much depends on the physiological makeup of the athlete but i'll tell you what doesn't work there's absolutely nothing to say that lifting the legs in between rounds does anything and in fact it's probably detrimental because you should be allowing natural blood flow to the legs rather than lifting and, and elevating them. So the thought behind that, and it's absolute BS, is that you're actually allowing lactic acid, which doesn't exist, to flow backwards and yeah. to be cleared from the system. Okay, And it's absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. It doesn't exist. You're better off letting the athlete put their legs down onto the ground. Yeah, which is easier for so, you as a coach. It can sometimes look better in the pictures, though, you know, like it looks very engaging. Yeah. It looks like they can be very engaging, but, you know. Yeah, it, yeah true. It doesn't do anything. It does nothing. What's your take on? Um, I know you do. You ask uh, some questions around uh, resistance bands and the use of resistance yeah. bands. Yeah, we're going down rant, rant Avenue now, Jamie. Resistance bands are great if they're used the right way. Problem is, and a lot of the times they're not used the right way. So, um, <laughs> resistance band one hundred and one. When you've got an elastic band or resistance band here, there's absolutely no resistance until I start stretching, and the more I stretch it the resistance increases. So resistance bands, for example, have absolutely no impact on the rate of force production for limbs. So they don't do anything on their own to increase the acceleration from point A to point B. Why? Because when, so for example, I've got my leg attached to a resistance band. The resistance at the start is low, but it only increases when I extend the leg out. So when I make contact in and around, that's when the band starts to increase. It does nothing for the uh, initial part of that movement. Absolutely diddly squat. And it's the initial part of the movement is where I need to have massive um, force production rates because that's the bit that, that um, when I push into the ground, boom, it comes off the ground and then travels towards the, uh, towards the target. So having them dangling on your legs and then just kicking because there's a bit of resistance on the end, does nothing. There's nothing of any benefit really. Uh, tying them between your legs, it does the exact same thing. There's no benefit to it, um, just 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 as, as where they are. Where they are useful is they um, allow what's called accommodating resistance to be applied to, um, a, a, say, for example, a bar for a squat. So when you put a bar on your back or, or across your shoulders and you squat down, the hardest part of the lift is actually coming out of the hole. 
Yeah. And the closer you get to standing, the easier it becomes. Okay, so the force is reduced. If you apply bands to the bar, it, it, it acts to kind of fill that gap towards the end. So towards the deceleration part of the movement, the resistance starts to increase and you get that continuum of applied force from start to finish, if that makes sense. Yep. Rather than just the first 20, 25% of the movement, and then it gradually gets easier as you get to the top. And as you get to the top, you're actually decelerating, which is not great for sports performance preparation. So the, uh, the band allows that accommodating resistance to increase the resistance as the weight is getting easier to lift um, at the top. So bands are really useful. You'll see chains being used in that capacity as yeah. well. They're really useful if they're used in the right way. Um, and they're great for warming up. So if you get a band and you toss it under your armpits and you're just, you, you, you know, you're punching out, uh, you know, you're activating your muscle groups that are going to be used for actually punching. Really good for that type of stuff. But to increase the rate of force production, they do absolutely diddly squat. They need to be used, like a lot of things within sports, Amy, they need to be used within the right context. Yeah, that was one thing I was going to say is, I suppose, context is, uh, it's like that with everything. It's, everything you do with context is, is the key. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think sure. that's another place, you know, where people fall down is they see this person over here was doing X, Y, Z and they went, sure, I'll just copy what they did. And it, like, you're not, yeah. if you don't have the whole picture and the context of yeah. what they're doing that in, yeah. you know, then yeah. it makes that's, sense. that's where the and, challenge and is. And Jay, I don't mean to be pontificating here, or, you know, or, or standing on a pedestal. I can say this hand on heart because I was one of the coaches that did all this stuff <laughs> back in the day because somebody said it was a good idea or it looked good on a video. And geez, I must do that. It makes me look like I know what I'm doing. When I look back on some of the stuff I did in cringe, knowing what I know now, I managed to kind of fill that that void of information and knowledge for myself and upskill. And so I can, you know, I, I, I've got the right to say and rant yeah. <laughs> that these things are silly because I did them myself. But look, again, information is there. You know, go and get that information. Use all use all your sport performance equipment within context for the best outcome. Is, uh, is the best advice I can give there. Yeah. And I suppose yourself, like you, you've you're starting something the the uh, combat sports institute. Um, yeah. What's the kind of thinking and uh, and set up with that? Um, well, we oh, I suppose it was an idea that kind of stemmed out of lockdown, Jamie. Kind of sitting um, and the rare times between being a dad and working and stuff and, and working with my my guys and kickboxing. Um, an idea I just came up with. It was originally a concept for kind of an online platform for sharing information, such as what we've discussed here tonight. Uh, so whether that be through uh, social media or, or a website. And the website is developed. Um, there's nothing on it. It's combatsport.ie. You can visit it. It will tell you absolutely nothing except Laura Nipson or whatever it is. <laughs> and uh, the name has been registered. So I've been given extra thought to it um, over the last six months. And I run a full-time, or I did run a full-time kickboxing um, academy or club before COVID. Uh, it, it now doesn't exist because the, the lease ran out and uh, we have to go looking for a new premises when COVID affects off and everything can get back to normal. So my thinking is now to actually uh, not only not only have it as a, an online platform for education, but to actually kind of run it in parallel then from a kickboxing uh, club and have, have a separate section called the Combat Sport Institute where athletes can actually come and engage in performance assessment tests um, to get strength profiles, to come and actually use the equipment that's there, hoping to kind of kit it out with power cages and squat racks and bench presses and uh, treadmills and, and watt bikes and stuff like that. Uh, but take all the sports science equipment in with it, so I'll be able to run VO2 max testing, uh, lactate profiling, um, 
force velocity profiling, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been talking to a couple of companies about all the, uh, the equipment that's needed. It's not going to be cheap, but um, it might be something that I'll, that I'll invest in. Um, look, it's from a timeline point of view, it could be this time next year or the year after that, but it's something I'm definitely kind of focused on, something that I'd like to achieve. Lots of other sports have performance labs that they can go to, triathlon, swimming, running. They've all got very well-established performance specialists and performance labs that can go, they can go to. Combat sport athletes don't have that per se. Uh, and I'd like to create that space for them to come and get all that information. So rather than me ranting here to you or <laughs> ranting on Instagram, uh, you know, they can come and actually engage in the program and, and get, some, get some information and education for themselves and their coaches too. And just be there and be, be able to go to their camps and to bring that expertise and knowledge to their camps for uh, to assist their preparation and performance. So it's something that's really it's really prevalent in the states and, and in the in the UK at the moment. And there's a there's a there's a there's a great Instagram account called Boxing Science Wilson Boxing Science. I don't mind giving this guy a shout out. I don't know. Yeah, I've, I've seen but, some uh, of the stuff. He's been. Yeah, I signed I up. Really I, will, I signed up to. Well, I I came across him and I signed up to you know whatever email program at one point in time yeah. and he i'm constantly getting yeah. emails now like i haven't followed up on any of the kind of the stuff in a, in a while but but uh when i did yeah. come across him i kind of felt and, and thought like this guy is uh knows his stuff and knows how it it, and also yeah. knows how it relates to to boxing because again it's it's missing yeah. it's missing in that space so i thought he was really i thought some yeah. of the stuff he was putting out was really good it's really good and it's 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 evidence-based what he's doing is evidence-based it's not just some nonsense that he's pulled out of the air um you know, he, he has a degree he has the uh, i think it's the the national strength and condition association they have a really highly um, recognized cert you know, i'm actually doing it at the moment called the certified strength and conditioning specialist um and yeah he knows the stuff and he posts up lots of really great content and he works with pro boxers uh, Terry Harper is one of them there. She fought recently. Really oh, he's worked with um, Anthony Fowler. Yeah. He's worked with Jordan Gill. Right. Jordan Gill, who fought yeah. last week. He's worked. I think he's worked with yeah. Tony Bellew. He's worked with like a lot of different guys like that. Yeah. A lot of big names have come yeah. through his camp. But he's very good at sharing information. And I mean, as a, if you're a combat sport athlete listening to this, go and look at him. Because all I can do at the moment is just produce information. He has what I would like in Ireland. He has the yeah. gym set up. He has the location, the performance center. And you can see what he's doing with combat sport athletes. And some of the stuff you'll have never, ever seen before, but it's very relevant and um, is very useful for combat sport performance. So isometrics, you know, different formats in terms of strength and conditioning, red zone conditioning, lots of footwork stuff, you, the, you, the proper use of bands, you know, military pressing, landmines, all of that type of stuff is there and is really useful. And you could learn a lot just by engaging with his, his page. Because I don't know the guy personally at all, so it's not a personal shout out it's just the information is really useful yeah so look John I think we'll leave it there um, great Jamie thanks for I hope coming that on. wasn't too much of a ramble and too much of a rant I no I think there was lots of good stuff there I think yeah. there's lots of actionable great. stuff there there's lots of like your opinion and takes maybe some myths that, and things around trying that may have been maybe yeah. de- debunked you could say but uh, yeah I'm yeah, sure uh, so. I'm sure there's lots there that maybe people so. take and so. look Jamie I'm happy if anyone's listening in shoot me an email I'm not set up as a company or anything like that I'm happy to engage absolutely free of charge to help any combat sport athlete uh, with advice in terms of their training. J-O-N, John, at combatsport.ie. You'll catch me, shoot me an email. Happy to give you some advice in terms of your direction of training preparation. Perfect, yeah. No I'll, issue with that. And I'll throw it in the description to... and all that as well. Perfect. Right. Lovely stuff, John. Take care. All the best. Thanks again. Okay, Jamie. Listen, thanks again for the opportunity. Look after yourself. See you again sometime on the other side of this crazy COVID. Yeah, stuff. hopefully. 
Take care. Yeah. All right, Jamie. Cheers, mate. All the best. Bye-bye.